interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 1, Tottenham Hotspur 2, Adelaide Crows 34, West Coast Eagles 67, Brisbane Broncos 26, Canterbury Bulldogs 8, Heart of Midlothian 0, Scottish Courts 1. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Well, Rory, there is only one place to start with this, it's classified results, and with the SPL fixtures coming out for the new season, uh, finally time to digest all the hard work and budge put in for, for no result. Yeah, I mean, as a Hearts fan, I've never felt very optimistic that a result would come in. I think you kind of, I think more than anything, the club was hoping for financial compensation rather than realistically hoping that they would get reinstated to the league. But it doesn't look like there's been much of that either. So I think it's now time to just suck it up and enjoy life in the championship back there a little bit quicker than we hoped when we went back up a few years ago after the year in the championship following our administration. But these things happen and we've got Robbie Nielsen back in charge who obviously took us out of the championship last time so hopefully he can work his magic especially fresh off taking Dundee United up the championship last year. Yeah, it seems to be roll, rolling back the, the Hearts golden oldies. Craig Gordon uh, yeah. has, has decided to come back to, to his boyhood club uh, rather than staying on with Celtic so it seems to be we might as well be going back to 2006 or something. Yeah, and there's talk about uh, getting Sam Nicholson back as well because he's finished his contract over in America and I think there are a few kind of League One and Championship sides interested in his services as well. So it'll be interesting to see what decisions he makes. But Robbie Nielsen's dead. He'll definitely be speaking to Sam, who was obviously involved in that Hearts team that got out of the Championship last time. So I think that it'll be familiar faces on Tynecastle come come August. Well, we always talk about loyalty being dead in sport, and and hopefully this this shows that it doesn't have to be, and we can and we can at least bring the fans back some of their fan favourites, which would be which would be great to see. Yeah, I mean. I do, though, have to say a word for uh, Daniel Standall, who unfortunately was moved aside when Hearts got relegated. I think all Hearts fans will agree that he was doing a great job since he came in. Maybe the results quite hadn't turned round as much as we would have liked, but he's still got five wins in his, I think, 17 matches in charge, took us to the Scottish Cup semi-final, beat Rangers twice. And I think things were looking better on Gorky under his management and there was a quite optimism that if things were improved we would have stayed in the league um so it's a shame that the circumstances dictated that he unfortunately couldn't keep the manager in role but I think all the hearts will thank his for his service and also I think most will be happy to see Robbie Robbie Nielsen back because he did such a great job last time it didn't quite work out for him down in England but now he's come back up to Scotland he's said he's improved as a manager and we saw how well he did with Dundee last year so hopefully he'll be able to continue his success at hearts now he's returned yeah, and uh, hopefully it'll make my accumulators a little bit easier to predict this uh, <laughs> when the new season starts. I certainly need a little bit of help the way uh, the way it's gone so far. A win for our teams in Australia. I know. <laughs> your Broncos, finally. Yeah, I was just thinking that. that it's, it's finally uh, turned good for us down under. Um, for you. For, <laughs> yes, for, for me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure 
I'm going to get overconfident and it's going to last too long, but we'll we'll enjoy the victory while we can, especially given how awful Arsenal were on Sunday. Yeah, I think the, the, the less said, the better uh, about that. Uh, I, I was actually busy with other engagements. Uh, it's not like me to miss a North London derby, but uh, I kind of followed it from afar and, and saw the goals after they'd gone in. And uh, it's never good to to hear about the way they played. No, I think if we talk about this for too long, it could be the first time we've sworn on this podcast, for my behalf anyway. So I think we maybe swiftly move forward. <laughs> exactly. And uh, we haven't mentioned the Adelaide Crows in the in the last three or four shows. Uh, that's because they lost again. Um, so uh, The rebuild didn't happen in a day. Rome wasn't built in a day. I'm so... still waiting for this T-shirt you promised me. <laughs> I'm still waiting for this T-shirt. As ever, we've got a number of talking points we're going to go through today's podcast. Later on in the show, we are joined by a uh, Scottish and Great British curler, uh, Jennifer Dobbs, who is part of Team Muirhead. A lot of people who follow curling and those who don't follow curling will know the, the accolades that Eve Muirhead has had. And, and he, in the last couple of years, Jennifer has come in part of her team. So we'll discuss what it's like in the world of curling, Jennifer's aspirations, and hear even a bit about the Ryder Cup of curling, which happens in Las Vegas. I can imagine that's a, a very enjoyable experience for anyone involved. Um, but before we go on to Jennifer... Um, Cricket return this week and the West Indies, uh, after a month of being in England, going through the protocols that are required for them to play with COVID-19 and and, and locking them away in a biosecure bubble, uh, won by four wickets on the fifth day. Uh, There was rain to start with in the first couple of days, which uh, finally meant that we actually have tests going into a fifth day. It seems to me we need need rain at the moment. But England, however, slightly different uh, looking lineup, especially from a bowling perspective. Yeah, really fascinating test match this was actually. I just to start with see how great it was to have test cricket on the telly again I think I didn't realize how much I missed just having Sky Sports on throughout the day in the background to kind of come and go and watch as I've got time Um, but yeah totally different lineup for England well not totally different but the big omission was Stuart Broad got left out of an England test side in England for the first time since 2012. Uh, Stuart Broad taking 485 wickets England's second all-time wicket-taker behind Jimmy Anderson, who is obviously in the team and was playing in the last Test match. And it was an interesting one. So he got left out in replace for Mark Wood and Joffre Archer, who partnered Jimmy Anderson and made a kind of three-way fast-bowling attack. And then obviously Ben Stokes as the all-rounder was the fourth seamer. Uh, it was interesting now. I want to get your thoughts on this because at the top of the show, on the very first morning when it was suggested that Stuart Broad was to be dropped for Mark Wood and Joffre Archer. I kind of went, oh yeah, I can see why they're doing that. Because as people follow cricket will know, Mark Wood and Joffre Archer are two of the most exciting English bowlers right now in terms of pace. Both easily push it through at 90 miles an hour plus, which is something that England have often lacked in the fastball department. They're really good swing bowlers, have got good bowlers for English style conditions, but they haven't had really kind of fast 90 mile an hour plus bowlers, especially having two in the same team. And it's kind of been the first time that these two have been available to be picked together because of injuries and things, and they've both done really well. But Joffa Archer was really important in the Ashes series last year, was kind of the one bowling bowler to get under Steve Smith's, under his skin. And then Mark Wood had a fantastic tour to South Africa this winter and was one of the leading bowlers there, taking nine, nine wickets in one of the test matches. And you kind of went, well, they're bowling well, they're bowling fast. It makes sense to put them in the team. But then actually when you stepped back and you looked at it and you saw that Stuart Broad is the second highest wicket taker in test cricket for the past 12 months. He was the highest wicket taker for England in that South Africa series in the winter, which Mark Wood bowled so well in. 
it was only this time last year that he was leading England's attack in the ashes and getting Dave Warner out for fun and making it look very, very easy bowling in England. And he's arguably had his best year as an England shirt in the past two or three years. And when you step back and you look at that and go, actually, wait, how can we leave this guy out? And I think as an England selection committee, they would have gone into that detail and gone, actually, no, we can't really leave Stuart Broad out. So I think my question to you, Ali, is do we almost underestimate how good Stuart Broad is? Because he spent his whole career playing second fiddle to Jimmy Anderson. And we know how good Jimmy Anderson is, the best English fast bowler of all time, potentially the best fast bowler ever to play the game. And certainly with English conditions, he would be the best fast bowler ever to play the game. And because Anderson's always been the leader of the attack and Broad's always been a sidekick, we kind of forget actually how good Stuart Broad has been. And in any other team, he'd be undroppable because he would have been the main man for so long, taking all the wickets. But we kind of, up until now, have underappreciated his services. And there, that's why the selectors could potentially think, oh, he was an expendable component in this fast bowling lineup. Well, I think, first of all, you have to say Jimmy Anderson's 37. Mm-hmm. I, didn't really, I, didn't really, I knew he was old, but in terms of fast bowling, but that, I mean, that's incredible. 37. Mm-hmm. Okay. Stuart Broad is 34. Okay. So an average age of 36, 30, 35 and a half. Even in modern standards, of where sports science is and where athletes, professional international athletes can play for longer. Uh, th- that is still, you know, pushing, pushing the limits. So I can understand from that point of view, having an eye down the line on what is, what is, what is what the world going to look like in the English fashion department without Jimmy Anderson and Stuart Broad. I don't know if that was their logic behind it, but I can see from a logical standpoint that why they might take that stance. However, if they're going to go down that route, for me, going with Wood and Archer suggests to me having two very similar style bowlers in terms of their quick, aggressive, intimidating bowlers. It's not like with the Australian scene bowling attack which bowls 90 miles an hour, that they bowl 90 miles an hour, but then you have a variety of, of pitch-up bowlers and short bowlers and left arm and swing bowlers and tall bowlers. You know, you compare Stark and Cummings and, and the rest of that. You get pace, but you also get consistency and accuracy. You know, you can bowl 90-plus miles an hour consistently and also go at two and a half and over. You don't get that, especially from Mark Wood and even Archer. These are wicket-taking bowlers where you don't mind them being a bit expendable and being a bit more expensive. So for me, the combination of those two in particular would worry me from that perspective. You know, you're asking Archer to bowl, not, not just run, run in a ball 90 miles and hit the top of off and, and swing it away. You're asking him to bowl short. You're asking him to come and break partnerships. You're asking him to bowl Yorkers. He's even brought out knuckleballs in, in test cricket. You know, asking him to do that kind of X factor role. And without someone or a couple of people being able to then pride the consistency at the other end, I think you open yourself up to being a little bit too cavalier with with the conceding of runs. You know, that's almost a sort of one-day mentality. You know, in terms of one-day cricket and T20 cricket, runs are going to keep going up. So it's the only way you stop that is by taking wickets. Test cricket's still a little bit different. In terms of what you're saying about Stuart Broad and, and Jimmy Anderson and, and why you leave Broad out over Anderson and, and, and Broad maybe feeling like he's been second fiddle and forgotten about, I think the thing with Broad compared to Anderson is... Broad has, over his career, blown hot and cold. He will get on a rhythm, he'll get on a roll where he will have series or runs of games or back-to-back series where he will 
probably pitch the ball a little up a little bit more and he will blow teams away. Mm-hmm. Absolutely yeah. blow teams away. He will also go through spells where he's not really picking up wickets. You know, his wickets incoming clusters. You talk about wickets being clusters in games, but for, for Broad, when I think about it, it, over his career, it's been through series or, or, or purple patches of years. With Anderson, however, it's just consistent. He's, just, he's always, always in the wickets. He's always, always involved. And you talk about over the last 12 months, you know, Broad's been saying he had a great trip to uh, South Africa and, and was involved heavily in the Ashes, etc. I can't remember that bit, but Anderson was injured. Yeah, for those ashes, I think he might have had even potentially. I might be wrong. Have an injury involved in and around the South Africa tour. Yeah, he well, he didn't play in the South Africa tour. So then, if you factor that in, actually, if you and especially if you are going to go down the wooden archer role, then and then you need someone who you know you're going to get the consistency out of. For me, I think someone who's hard by most Chris Wokes. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I think it's that's important to know that Chris Wokes averages something like twenty three in English conditions or something incredible like that. So I, I don't know why they went down that route. I do wonder, and and again, I don't want to sort of be misquoted. If this was against an India, or if this was against an Australia, if this was against, and it wasn't against West Indies, whether they would have approached this differently, mm-hmm. you know. The job that Jason Holder is doing around that test team cannot be underestimated. It, it is a massive change in culture that you know is going through West Indies cricket. It's a long way to go, by no means done, and I'm sure there'll be some road bumps continue. But it's a young team. It's a change. You know, it's a change in culture. There's a change in expectations. Uh, what what Phil Simmons is doing there with Jason Holder is great, and, and all credit that they deserve to win that test match. They were deserved, and I as I do wonder if this had been a slightly different team or a slightly different time I mean England did they potentially underestimate the West Indies you know did they go in oh in English conditions we're gonna we're gonna trial something new now Mark Wood and Joffrey are fabulous bowlers they really are but I do wonder whether they would have gone with the try and test and what they know in different circumstances yeah I think I'd agree with that actually I think there's a lot of things there in what you said that are really interesting I think first of all yeah, what you said about the West Indies team and the job that Jason Holder is doing there should be applauded. They're doing an absolutely fantastic job in kind of rebuilding West Indian Test cricket, which really took a slump over the past few years. And also one thing that was really of note when watching the Test match was when they were talking about the players in the team and their kind of best performances and it kind of brought up the graphics of where they'd scored their most runs or their best wicket hauls. It always seems to be against, West, against England. All these players seem to have had their best scores or their best bowling performances against England and it, it's funny how the West Indian side seem to just find that extra 5% against when they're playing England and that's quite I mean I think that's quite a big rival for them and they they do seem to find a bit more when playing England and that and that, that was went to show in the in the test match we saw over the last five days I, mean, um, I, I do wonder is that a West Indian thing or, or is it also a cricket thing in general not no not a cricket thing in general I'm, I'm talking about is it a, an English thing you know are England and underestimating the West Indies. I mean, mm-hmm. you said there that you know West Indian Test cricket. It's not been more than a few. It's been decades mm-hmm. where yeah. it has struggled. It really has, and it's it's a real shame because they are. We talked about last week with Australian rugby. You can't tell the, the story of rugby union without Australia. You can't tell the story of cricket without the West Indies. And where their Test cricket has been, has been you know nowhere where it should be. Do England underestimate them? Well, I mean, I certainly think if it, if it was the first day, it was the first test of an Ashes we just had, I can't see them not picking Stuart Broad. I can't see them not doing it. So that is, that is one point. I think 
on the Jimmy Anderson thing, as you said, Jimmy Anderson has been injured, so it was important for English cricket to get him back in the team, get him back playing a test match, especially he's the sort of person who his career is going to extend over the next probably year or two if he is bowling. He's not going to be able to come in and in and out of test matches. He's very much been, able, been a bowler who's kept fit from bowling and he's got to be bowling to be able to be fit enough to play test cricket. So it was important to get him in the team. But I think that's interesting what you said about Archer and Woods and about the fact that they are kind of almost swashbuckling, kind of abrasive, aggressive bowlers who like to get under the batsman's skin and take wickets that way. And I think if it was the other way around, if this test match had been in the Caribbean, you can almost see why they would do that on those kind of fast dry hard wickets which maybe aren't so good for for swing bowling and you need to get your wickets in other ways and a place where England have just traditionally struggled over the past few years is bowling and taking wickets in the Caribbean so you could see why if it was the other way around they would make that decisions but it was a slow seeming swinging English pitch at the end of the day there wasn't loads of pace in it it did a bit especially in the first two days when it was cloudy it then flattened out a bit when the sun came out who is better at taking wickets on in these sort of conditions it's, it, than Stuart Broad and James Anderson? And and I don't see how they couldn't see that. And actually, all the conversation coming out of it is that Old Trafford's going to be the faster pitch. And that's why England felt like they didn't need as much pace because the pitch is quicker naturally and they needed the pace on the slow pitch to generate the pace themselves. But to me, that seems the wrong way around. To me, it seems if the pitch is going to be faster, Old Trafford, you want your 90 miles an hour bowler to then take advantage of that and be uncomfortable using the pace that's in the pitch rather than trying to force pace out of a pitch that doesn't have the life to it that they need to bowl fast and bowl short and bowl aggressive. Moving away from cricket, we saw we talked about fairy tale stories a couple of weeks ago, uh, our favourite ones. Potentially, we might have put this one in, I don't know. Wickham Wanderers uh, have managed to uh, get through the playoffs, be promoted from the Skybet League One to Skybet Championship in in, in England. And uh, it's quite a remarkable story how they do it. They went from, I believe it's fair to say, the first day of pre-season at Wickham Wanderers this year, there was nine players. They've gone from having nine players the first day of pre-season, I think had the the highest or they get the best odds or sorry the worst odds sorry for them to finish bottom and get relegated down to league two and what's actually happened is they've got promoted incredible i know this was i mean i i i flicked it on because it was half time and the premier league game that was on to be brutally honest and got hooked because it was just a fascinating game in the second half i mean oxford were having a lot of possession and wickham were kind of setting up well in defence and hitting them on the counter-attack. And it was a really great game of football. And Wickham ended up winning 2-1 with a penalty in the 80th minute from Joe Jacobs, who actually missed a penalty in the semi-finals against Fleetwood. And he was also saying afterwards they did they practiced penalties the day before in training. And he missed he missed the penalty in training the day before as well. So they asked him after what he's thinking. He was thinking, I'm just praying that he was going to score it. And apparently he asked... Uh, the goalkeeper coach about stats about where the opposition goalie dives and where he should go and the, apparently the goalkeeper coach says good on the middle and you're absolutely fine and that's what he did and he scored the penalty to win the game but the fairy tale was much more than that I mean it was fascinating so yeah they they turned up with nine players nine first team players on the first day of preseason two of which were trialists so they only had actually seven contracted players they finished in the bottom six in the season before they were bookies odds on favourite to finish bottom of the table and get relegated and they managed to turn it around. I think Gareth Ainsworth, uh, the manager, 
who is also the lead singer of her band and kind of looks like a proper rocker. So it's really interesting to see any of these fantastic bright orange shoes on yesterday. He said that they had new ownership come in in October and it was the new ownership took over from fan ownership, which they had before, which they had relied on previously when they had had some financial difficulties. And he said that the owners just were so supportive of him to bring in the players he needed to rebuild the team. And it was a total rebuild because he said they only had seven full-time players. And I think for me, Ali, this is the story of, and this is how he put it, of almost kind of the opposite of what we said was possible these days in football with the money and everything. And maybe because it's League One and if it was a championship, it might be different. But they had the lowest budget. They went out and bought players that were potentially not at the height of their career. They were just potentials that were going to work hard. They were players that were going to buy into what they were doing. They were struggling at other clubs. I mean, Akin Fen was there and we his kind of journey through the lower leagues of English football is, is quite famous. And there's a lot of stuff about that. And he talked about how the fact that he was almost unemployed only a few years ago. And now he was going up to the championship somewhere he's never played before. And they've kind of taken these players and they've all just bought into this system where they are going to fight for each other and they are going to scrap for every ball. And, and he said that, he said, I've not got the most technically gifted set of players, but what I've got are players who are willing to work unbelievably hard, work harder than the opposition, work hard in every single game and every single session. And that's proved. And it's it's just it's just fantastic to see. And I, and I, I must say, even though there was no fans in the stadium, I don't think I have seen a more passionate and more kind of heartfelt celebration in the Wiccan players last night. They were going absolutely wild. 10, 15 minutes after the full-time whistle, they were still in kind of in disbelief. And I, and you see a lot of times, and maybe not the, in the playoffs as such, but you do see a lot of times when teams win trophies, it's sometimes like they're, they're celebrating because they have to. And I think maybe that's more with things like the League Cup sometimes. But it was, you could see the passion in every single one of the Wiccan players. And it was just fantastic to see. Yeah, it shows. There was a, there's an age-old movie quote that, um, that, that, that sticks with me. If, if anyone's watched Game of Thrones, um, I remember a scene, I think it's in season one, where, where King Robert Baratheon uh, is talking to, to his wife, Cersei Lannister, and, and he said, what's more powerful, one or five? And it goes, I think Cersei goes for the higher number, five. And, he, and he, puts his, he puts his hands up and he sort of shows five fingers sort of on their own and sort of said, that's five. And then he brings all five together and makes a fist and says, that's one, you know, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a cheesy movie reference or a TV <laughs> reference, but, it, but it's always been really powerful. That's that which always stuck with me. And, and this is a classic example of it is that if you can be a manager or a coach or a captain or, or a leader of some capacity of any team, not just a sporting team, any team, and you can bring them together, you don't have to have the most talented that, you don't have to have the most, someone with the most ability. It, it, it's about whatever a particular person's strength is, is working with that person's strength to add it to the team's overall strength. And that's what he seems to have done. And it shows the power of this. You know, how often do we see in the, in the sort of big money leagues and big money sports, people spend all this money uh, to bring it? You know, Paul Pogba is a brilliant example. Paul Pogba, we, we know of what talent he's got, but if it's not the right situation for him, he can be anything but an asset. You know, now all of a sudden we look what Manchester United are doing and Bruno Fernandes come in and all of a sudden Pogba's part of the team. And so it, it needs to be team first oriented. It really does. And I've always played team sports and people who follow individual sports 
you know, it's slightly different mentality and that's fine. But even the, the individual athletes, individual sports, you have a team around you. And this shows the power of people buying into a common goal and, and making sacrifices. Each guest we have, we often hear about the sacrifices they've had to make in their lives or what have you to be successful or, or to do it have. These are the sacrifices that people are putting in as a, as a team collective. You know, it doesn't matter how good you are. I'm just going to work my socks off. And, and by doing that, we are giving ourselves a better opportunity to come out on top than the others. Yeah, and I think actually by that kind of attitude and mentality they have alone, you can see them doing all right in the championship. Like, and certainly you can see them, if they do end up in a kind of relegation scrap, you can see if they can kind of carry this attitude forward that they might be one of the teams that survives that because they'll have that kind of fight to the last, scrap to the end mentality which potentially other sides at the bottom of the table struggle with sometimes. And maybe, and they, I think they've used loans quite well this year. I think there was a number of players on the pitch that were on loan and that probably naturally because of their situation, kind of needing to get players in quickly when they didn't have much finances. So that was something they do. So if they can maybe get some good loans in for next year or maybe a little bit more quality to come and compete at that championship level. You can see if Gareth Ainsworth can keep that mentality going in the team and keep the kind of core players together, they could do all right in the championship. Yeah. It almost, I mean, aside and watch the game and, and, and what have you, but just, you know, reading about it and, and, and hearing you talk about it, it almost gives me the feeling of almost like it's not a professional team. <laughs> yes, that's exactly how it felt. And actually, I got goosebumps when they were celebrating at the end. Because even though it was an empty stadium, you got goosebumps because you could see how much it meant to them. It was like your local Sunday league team had won their first trophy and it was like everything you had kind of been working towards. Yeah, and, and sometimes that is lost, you know, Professional athletes, they become sports become their job, and they're very lucky uh, to be able to do what was at once their hobby and turn it into their job. But they can get to a stage where, like all of us, our job becomes a bit tiresome, and 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 fans often lose sight of of that. And I'm, I can totally empathise with that being the case. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it is still a sport, and be able to see that just basic camaraderie and basic passion of that you would see from your local Sunday league team, you see from your local rugby team, you see from your local hockey team, whatever it might be, giving up your Tuesday or Thursday nights to train to then win your first promotion or what have you up to your your regional top league or whatever. It seems to be there's that sort of sense. And that is in essence what sport is all about. It'll be really intriguing to see now what happens uh, with the championship. Uh, it's a brutal league um, and and hard work often pays off in that league. So uh, good good luck to Wickham uh, Wanderers in, in, in next season. As ever, a number of other th- stories were going on in the sport this week. Here's a look at the ones that interested the most. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. Manchester City finally know their fate of European football with the Court of Arbitration for Sport reversing its decision to remove them from the Champions League. They were hit with a fine instead. The European Tour returned this week at the Diamond Country Club in Austria and Scotland's Mark Warren clinched his first European title in six years, winning by a single shot. This comes just in time for the week that the Open was meant to be this week. And the Open Championship Without Borders is getting put together and they are stitching together old footage from previous tournaments at St Andrews and making the greats of the game such as Seve Balasteroff, Nick Faldo and Rory McIlroy compete together in a new championship using footage of the last time they played the Sunday at the Old Court. In ANZ Netball, Central Pulse stay top of the tree, stay top of the ladder, still with a 100% record, 
beating the Southern Steel 40-37. The Canterbury Crusaders are still fighting off all their New Zealand rivals to stay top of the Super Rugby down in New Zealand. On the PGA Tour, we see the second straight week of golf happening at Jack Nicholas's Muirfield Village. After the Workday Charity Open, we see the Memorial Championship happen with slightly quicker greens this week. It'll be interesting to see, with the return of Tiger Woods, how the field reacts. Uh, this week, we are joined uh, from a very special person from the world of curling, uh, Jennifer Dobbs, uh, Scottish uh, and hopefully British curler. Uh, Jennifer has uh, had much success so far. She was uh, the Scottish women's champion earlier this year, as well as the Scottish mixed doubles champion. She won a silver in 2019 at the Europeans, as well as being a 2019 and 2020 Continental Cup winner, which we'll come on to explain in a bit, as well as winning silver in 2013 at the Junior World Championships. Jennifer, how are you doing? Um, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Not at all. How how is your uh, COVID lockdown look like? I, I can imagine that you haven't had much exposure to the ice at the moment. No, no, we have had none. The last time I stepped on the ice was in Vancouver. So uh, we were out at the World Champ, well, preparing for the World Championships out in Vancouver, travelled up to Prince George, which where the Worlds was being held. And the day before it was supposed to start, it got cancelled. So it, that sense disappointing going all that way, but you can understand why that decision was made. Um, so flew home. I think we had a couple of days and then straight into lockdown, frantically trying to find some gym equipment to use in my spare room. So that has pretty much been my my life during lockdown. Gosh, I mean, we've heard of sport being cancelled during during lockdown, but we've not heard it kind of being cancelled that close to the event. What was the initial reaction amongst yourself and the team when you had gone through all that preparation, you were there ready to compete and then it all got shut down in front of you? Yeah, so obviously before we went, we kind of knew like COVID was kind of about, but we didn't think it was that bad. We thought we were going to be able to compete, but then the men's worlds were supposed to be in Glasgow and they were kind of like two weeks after that. So we thought, oh, I don't think they'll happen, but our championships will happen. And we were sitting a Wednesday night um, at a restaurant and we were just watching sort of the sports channels on the TV. And that was when sort of basketball got shut down, NFL, like NFL, like the NHL all got shut down. And we were just sitting there like, oh, no. This is this is not good. <laughs> yeah, and so, can, yeah. just for context, can you what sort of date? Like what date was the championships meant to start? I oh god, um, did we fly the seventh of March? This is it when you realise how long lockdown's been, and it was actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was around it was around it was around the start of March sometime. I think we flew the seventh, and we were supposed to start the following Saturday, which would have been like the. 13th or something like that so and then we got cancelled on the 11th or something like that so yeah it was um disappointing <laughs> I, I can imagine obviously outside of the, the, the world's is is this sort of has this been in season for you in terms of obviously from a british perspective uh, a lot of people you know get behind curling sort of every four year around the winter olympics you know we saw the success of rona martin back in 2002 uh, and then eve muirhead and dave murdoch their teams in 2014 you know and every four years there's a wave of appreciation for curling and then unfortunately it, it, at times for one reason or another it, it, it slips away so what was what's a season look like for you what's the international schedule look like is there a particular season or is it something that runs all year round yeah there, there is sort of a quite 
sort of defined season um, for us. We usually would be kind of just getting back on ice now. We should have been going back on the 13th of July, but it's been pushed back a wee bit to the end of the month. And then we would have sort of summer training on ice in July and August. And so sort of end of August, start of September, we would start our competition season. Usually we'd probably go out to Canada the first couple of weeks and we would sort of have competitions right through to Christmas. The Europeans would have been around November time. And we would have a short break at Christmas. Usually we would be competing in the last weekend before Christmas. So this year, I think we were finished on the 22nd or 23rd of December. A couple of days off for Christmas, training camp between Christmas and New Year, a couple of days off for New Year. And like last year, we started on the 2nd of January. So Christmas is quite a busy time for us. Um, and then our, we're competing again, Scottish in February, then Worlds in March. And then I was supposed to be away the whole of, the whole of April. There was two sort of big events in Canada uh, our team qualified for. And then in between those two, I was going to go to the World Mixed Doubles with Bruce. So that was four or five weeks we were going to be traveling. So that was quite a lot we missed out on. So it is usually between sort of September, April time is our kind of competition season. Uh, when, so when you say we there, it sounds a hectic, hectic schedule. And you, you did mention Bruce, who, who you do your mixed doubles partner work with. But when you say we, what, what, what's the team look like? How's that structured? Who, who sits in your team? Who do you compete with? Um, is there kind of a Grand Prix style circuit you go on out with, the, say, the, the World Championships, etc.? Yeah, so my team consists of Eve Muirhead. She skips, obviously well-known, even without, without the sort of outside the curling sort of scene. Uh, Lauren Gray, she's from Glasgow. She's placed third. She's been, I've played with her actually for on and off for like 10 years or something like that. So we can't get rid of each other. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I play, I play second. Um, and then Vicky Wright, who's someone else who I've played with for I think like eight years, she plays lead. So lead always plays the first two stones in the team. The second plays the next two the third place, the next two, and then the skip gets the last two stones of the end. So, yeah, there is, there is, there is, a, there is a kind of a Grand Prix sort of circuit. We have a, it's called the World Curling Tour event. Um, so competitions throughout the season, you get sort of world ranking points, you get prize money, and that all goes towards your world ranking points. And then if you're in the top 15 in the world, you can go to the Grand Slam of Curling events, uh, which is kind of like your your best teams playing each other and there's um around I can't actually remember how many it was this year one two I think there was about six or seven this year and that's where a lot of the prize money is as well so they're all out in Canada so we actually got an email yesterday saying they've actually been cancelled for this year so that's a bit disappointing so and when you talk about your team is this it's not like my understanding it's not like a, a Scotland curling team is it almost more like a club team and you could have more teams from Scotland coming around or is it like you four are the team that represents Scotland how does it work like that so we are in the British curling program um and it is kind of like you with British curling kind of decide who you want in your team so it is it's not really like you can be from any club um or anything like that. it's kind of like your best players play to like try and get together kind of thing so 
we don't when we go on tour we don't represent Scotland there's there could be like other teams so there's an another team who have just sort of joined together so they could be at the same competition as us so you could have multiple people representing Scotland if that makes sense and And you would go under the 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 name as a Scottish team you wouldn't have like an alternative name that you came up with for your team no usually it's like uh, it always goes under the skips name so it would be team Muirhead from Scotland so we represent Scotland if you go to like Europeans or worlds or something like that that's when it's one team per country and for the Olympics obviously we represent GB but we qualify through Scotland to get the GB spot for the Olympics yeah so that was what I was going to go on to next the kind of selection process when you go to things like worlds and winter Olympics and you have to qualify for Scotland team or a GB team what is that process like and how do you kind of whittle these multiple teams down into four players that are going to represent Scotland or GB at this major tournament? Um, So in the past, like to go to Worlds, it was whoever won the Scottish Championships, which was in February, whoever won that went, but they have decided to change that for this upcoming year. And uh, there's going to be a selection panel that actually decides which team goes and they kind of look at kind of your form over the season and stuff like that to see who gets selected to represent Scotland now so it's this season is the first season it's changed and so in that case then could so it wouldn't be that you might have two players from one team and two players from another team going would it be is is it very much like you go as a team you come as a team and there'll be four players from a team going to represent Scotland it would never be that well, these two players from this team are, and these two players from this team are the four best, so we're going to put them together. Uh, no, it's always you come as like a package, you come as a team. Because within curling, you're on the ice for, you can be up on the ice for up to three hours at a time. Um, and that's like twice a day at competition, so that's six hours. So there's a lot of sort of dynamics involved. So if you just kind of shove like two players from one team and two players in another team into a competition like there's so much work on your team dynamics it just it just wouldn't work there's like years that go into figuring out like okay under pressure this is what we do and just kind of getting to know people individually how they react to things as well that's so important because there's so much time with like you've got sort of talking and you can feedback and stuff like this there's yeah, so it, it, it is so much down to that. And we use psychologists a lot to kind of break that down and stuff like that. So there's a lot of work that goes into a team. You can just kind of shove four people together at the last minute. Is there is there much kind of trying to steal players from one team to another across the course of a season? Or, you know, is there kind of, uh, you know, you see in football, you see transfer deadline day between seasons in the world of curling. Is there almost like a transfer deadline day where one team might try and steal someone away from another team and ready for that season? Um, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you, you wouldn't see changes during like the course of a season. Once you've kind of got your team, your teammates, you're pretty much set. Um, the only time you probably see changes is in the summer around sort of May, June time for us we kind of again speak to British curling and we kind of discuss the team and stuff like that. So that's when you would see transfers, as you you say. So we have stayed together again this season. So 
fortunately for us, we we had no no changes. I can, I can imagine that continuity is probably what something that you look to strive. If if, a, if something's working, then then why bother trying to fix it? You, you, you're there. We've been sort of touching on the sort of working in the in, for the women's team, and obviously in curling that comes as a thought. You've also done a bit of as you said, sort of mixed curling with, with with Bruce for the sort of untrained eye. Is it, we're working across a four opposed to working across a two? Is there huge amounts of difference? Do you have a sort of format you prefer? What's the kind of what, why would you choose one over the other? Is the one you're slightly better at? What's your sort of perspective on that? It's a good question. I would say they're both similar because you're just playing curling shots. So in that sense, it's pretty similar. Uh, mixed doubles is a wee bit different because you have or before the sort of end starts you have already stones in play but I find both really enjoyable because the people I'm with as well like I've been with well with this team for almost three years now so we get to know each other quite well and then I've known Bruce for years so it's such a social aspect as well for curling I would say is is important so I couldn't actually decide between the two if I had to (laughs) I'd probably I would probably say my women's team is that just because sorry is is that is that just because you know they'll fall out with you if you don't say them no 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 they wouldn't Uh, (laughs) if you hadn't given us an answer that would have been the very first question when you ran the gauntlet of questions later so uh, (laughs) so you've got it out of the way Um, no I, I would say my women's team yeah Exactly. So, um, so obviously, as you said, Eve and, and I think Vicky, uh, certainly, they, they've been to, to a Winter Olympics before. Uh, something that, that you haven't had the opportunity to do as yet. Is that the next big goal for you in your career? Or, or is there other things you kind of want to achieve first? What's, for, for Jen Dobbs, what's the sort of next big stepping stone? Um, yeah, like uh, the Olympics is definitely our, one of our main goals in sort of our, this four-year cycle is to get to Beijing. So to qualify for that, we need to perform, well, Scotland, whoever goes to represent Scotland needs to perform um, in the next World Championships, which usually is done in two years. So so usually it'd be like 2020 World Ladies Championships and 2021 Ladies World Championships, whoever, you score points to get to Olympics. So whoever had the most points would go. But because obviously this year's got cancelled, everything is riding on next year's so whoever goes to represent that so if we get to go that is definitely going to be a focus for us because we want to get that spot for GB. And how does that work then across you said as a Scotland team you're trying to get that spot for GB now I'm assuming I might be wrong here you're also going to be competing with teams from England and other parts of the the United Kingdom to try and represent GB at at the Winter Olympics or is it very much that the Scottish team is the team that goes? (laughs) Well, I think obviously GB is in a sort of a unique position, but I think they have to just like I think they have to nominate which country gets the points, kind of thing. So for us, we're the only team out of sort of the four nations that are in sort of the top bracket of the European curling. So we haven't actually faced any like uh, English or Welsh ladies teams or anything like that. Um, so it for us it's quite easy to be like, right, Scotland is getting the points and it's pretty similar for the boys as well. Is the curling much more prevalent in Scotland than it is in, in as you say, England, Wales and Northern Ireland? Um, I would say so. So Scotland is sort of the birthplace of curling. So you kind of 
hope we would be have a wee bit of an advantage to, <laughs> compared to the rest. <laughs> well, you, you should say that about golf as well. But I mean, it's that's <laughs> true. That is very true. <laughs> I don't know what it is. We've just just we have more ice rinks and stuff like that. But like when the Olympics comes around, it is a whole nation gets behind it like wherever you are in the country it's, all you hear is like oh, did you watch the game last night kind of thing so <laughs> we, it, for me it's totally it's totally bizarre like every four years everyone's like oh my god did you see that shot last night and I'm like okay this never happens <laughs> <laughs> so it, like there is I think there is sort of the opportunity there it's just we need to take advantage when it does come around and for you personally then what was your journey into curling because as you said it's not or the sport that always gets lots of attention kind of between Olympic cycles. Although I do feel like it's one of those sports that more people curl than you potentially realise, but it's not maybe the, the first sport you would think to play. So how did you pick up curling when you were, when you were younger? Um, so when I was younger, my parents, well, they both still play now as well. So I got through sort of through into through my family and like my, both my grandpas played and stuff like that. So it was very much within, within our family. Um, I remember when I was younger, my brother, who's three years older than me, started, and I was still too young, so I had to sit at the side with my coloring, my coloring books and all that, and <laughs> just watch at the side. So when I got to about seven or eight, I was like, right, I don't want to be coloring anymore. I want to be playing. So that's how I, that's how I got into it, and I've never really looked back since. Do Do you remind your brother now of how much better you are than him? No. <laughs> <laughs> ne- ne- never he, would do such a thing. No, he, he like he says it himself. So, that, that, <laughs> so, so you, don't, you don't have to it. tell him. You don't have to tell him. <laughs> He's already saying it. Yeah. I think yeah. I think me and Rory can empathise with that on a many on a number of different things, but that's a conversation for another time. Um, you, you've alluded to a number of times there, Jen. You know, you've been supported by British curling. What does that support look like? We, we had uh, James Heatley on last week from from Scottish Swimming, and, and he was mentioning that uh, he he uh, worked up to be a supported athlete and in, in from Scottish Swimming and British Swimming. In terms of, we ask a lot of our guests who come on who aren't maybe from the mainstream sports. Is it something you can do full time? You're playing in your training, or is it something you have to balance, sort of, with, with a career? So we're probably quite similar to James in that aspect. We are in sort of the UK sport funding system as well, so you get sort of financial, like almost like a salary kind of thing from them. And there's sort of it goes to, from like performance based. So we have certain criterias you have to hit. So if you let's say do well at worlds there's certain criteria you can earn like a certain amount of money but if you don't you might go down a band or something like that so within curling it's obviously not it doesn't have the most money in the world compared to golf or something like that but we do we do spend a lot of time in Canada there's kind of the most money is out in Canada sort of prize money and stuff like that the as I said before the grand slam curling has quite good prize money so for us, I would say there is enough to like have a have a living kind of thing, but it's again kind of looking past your sort of your career and you have to kind of make sure you have something for when you kind of finish curling because even though in curling it, it is probably a sport you could do for quite a long time, it's not sort of like again like diving it's quite your career is quite short you can keep on going for a long period of time but you still kind of need that sort of backup plan if things don't sort of plan out 
Uh, one last thing I sort of wanted to touch on, uh, I sort of mentioned at the top, something I sort of came across and found really interesting is there's almost like a Ryder Cup of curling, which I know that happens <laughs> for the, the, the Continental Cup. I, I think you, you won it last, uh, last year and, and, and this year. For, for our listeners, do you want to explain how that, that sounds because on the surface a sort of right any Ryder Cup style competition I'm signing up for yeah, <laughs> yeah it is it, like for athletes and I think the viewers it is a lot of fun so basically it is kind of similar to the Ryder Cup format so the past past two years we've been part of Team World and last year was Team Europe and we were playing against um, Team North America and 2019 was in Las Vegas and last oh. year was in Lon- in London Ontario so um it was so much so much fun and the team we were with we know all the guys so well so it was a sort of a guy and a girls team from Scotland Switzerland and Sweden so we all got on so well and it was just an absolute blast to play with them and i think the bonus of beating them twice in a row was extra sweet because no world team had beaten North America twice, like back to back. So that made it a little sweeter. So, so that's always against, so it's essentially against North America, against whoever they, they, they want to play. And, and what that, you know, I always find it fascinating. Golf's a little bit different because it's an individual sport when it comes to Ryder Cup. But, you know, most of the competitions you'd be doing, I, I imagine, it are against a lot of the European countries. So although you sort of get on and know each other from the tour, how's it been, how is it sort of going from competing against them week in, week out to then having to sort of earn points and work together each other as a team? Yeah, um, I think for us, we found it pretty easy. We have already been friends with most of the people within the team, even sort of like, yes, we play each other week in, week out. But I think in our sport, we're very lucky to be able to have friends off the ice. But when you're on the ice, you want you want to beat them. You want to kind of one-up them, let's say. So we found it really easy cheering on like people who are usually our opposition. So we know how good they are. We play against them week in, week out. So yeah, it was just a lot of fun cheering with them this time. Us, us Europeans getting one over the North Americans. I think we're not going to find any people who are complaining about that too much. I think we're all pleased <laughs> no. to see that. So, so, so keep it going, please. Keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, Thanks. We'll, we'll, um, okay, well, I think as said at the start that you have maybe know what's coming now but we get each guest to do a a lightning round of 45 seconds of random questions so um you won't know what's coming so i hope you won't be able to do any homework are you ready to to go run the gauntlet i will try my best there's no time to run the gauntlet night on the town or night in with a book Mm, night in with a book uh can you actually find love on love island no karaoke song Oh. Eh, pass. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Messi or Ronaldo? Eh, Ronaldo. Simon Cowell, genius or fraud? Genius. Play days, what was the best stop? I don't remember them. <laughs> oh. Pineapple, okay pizza topping. Oh no, 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 no. Cats or dogs? Eh, cats. Fish and chips or Sunday roast? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I don't remember the stops either. So that's definitely Ali showing his age. <laughs> yeah, I was like, how do you remember them? You were like, 
three when you were watching yeah, it. Yeah, but the Y bird start was always so much fun. She was so colourful and she was a parrot. It was great. I used to love the Y bird. <laughs> you know, I remember the in, like vaguely remember the intro. That's about it. That, that's valid. And I, I'm very disappointed that you haven't got a karaoke song ready to mind. Oh no, I, I'm not a singer. I am. I am like one of these people. I'm like, no. Well, Jen, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's been really good to have you on. You know, best of luck when when the sort of resumption of, of curling comes back and you can get on the ice and you can you know get your slippers you get your slippers off and your broom and actually get and replace it with the ice instead. So, um, and and all the best with that qualification towards Beijing 2022 as part of uh, you know Team Muirheads and, and and all the best and and uh, I hope you stay safe. Thank you very much. Once again, some wonderful insight from a from a different sport. Amazing what Jen was saying. What what blew my mind there, Rory was. Once you're in a team, so part of, for her, part of Team Muirhead, and they're putting together an international team, they can't take the best two players from one team, the best two players from another team, and, and combine them together to make a national team. I mean, it's, it's just such a unique situation. I can't think of any other sport where the national team is made up of an, an existing side and you can't combine players from different teams to make up the kind of overall national team. I think that's just, it's just fascinating. And that's, I think, I'm trying hard, but I think that's totally unique. I can't think of another sport like it. I know you must you must be gutted if 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 say you're a young a young curler and and you you, you throw second or you curl second and you're the, and you have the best statistical record or the best record in the world at going second, but there is a team that's been set in stone for a while and what have you and and, and as a team they are better say. and as a team they are better, but yet you are a team player. And and you're buying second, and you just you just blocked. So this week uh, we are going to get a bit more passionate about and a bit more insight to to me and Rory. We, we were talking about sort of earlier about Wickham and the passion of the game and seeing how they celebrated uh, getting promoted and what it meant to them. So this week's top three looks at when me and Rory have lost it the most watching a game of sports on the television or something where we, everyone's got those moments where you just, you almost can't remember what happened because you were shouting so much, you were throwing things or, or whatever it might be. So our top three sporting moments where we celebrated the hardest we've ever celebrated. I found this really difficult. I don't know if I'm just a very unpassionate, unemotional person. It's but, an Arsenal fan. It's yeah. Arsenal. yeah maybe, maybe just my sports teams are so poor that I never have anything to celebrate, but I don't know. I feel like, there's lots of like moments of um, like mild or reasonable emotion, but like really passionate moments. I found slightly difficult, but I've got a top three. So. Is it me to go first? I was trying to think. I, can't, I think it is I, me to I go first. I can't remember. Uh, well, I, I will let I will let you go first. Whether it's you to go first or <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah, no, I it was because I didn't know any of your films when you told me about them last oh, week. That's, that's very true. And and I see over, I see over the social media that the right has been wronged, and I've I've. Uh, I took I took victories. Tough to take. I think that the the there wasn't a young enough crowd to be supporting me on goal on that one. That was the polarizing. Yeah, was there, the there was messages both for and against goal that were sent into the page. So apologies for for all those who felt we did bend it like Beckham a disservice. Uh, Kira Knightley at her best, but didn't didn't quite make it into the top. Yeah, another th- another film I've never seen, so maybe I need to be more cultured. But um, back to the passion that I also seem to be lacking. So number three, I'm going to do when Hearts scored the first goal in the Scottish Cup final against Celtic last year. 
just because it it was just like such a moment where we just you didn't just didn't expect to get anything from the game for Hearts. Just you know, you go in against Celtic who have dominated Scottish football for the past nine years, and you just didn't expect anything to get to the game, and then to go up in the second half. 1-0 and just have that little bit of belief that actually maybe you could beat the Celtic team and you could win the Scottish Cup, which is always a massive thing for Hearts. I just went absolutely wild. I remember I was in my bedroom at uni um, and I just went absolutely wild. Unfortunately, it was all in vain and Celtic went a 1-2-1. But it was still that moment of just slight belief was just, was just fantastic. So that's number three. Number two is actually me shouting at the telly for the wrong reasons. Scotland rugby fans, I mean, there's been lots of shouting to do about Scottish rugby over the past few years, but I thought I'd only pick one from Scottish rugby. And this was the 2015 World Cup. Now, that will send shivers and, and horrible memories down the spines of every Scottish rugby fan, but particularly the quarter final against Australia, where Scotland went up and looked like they were going to win the game. And then Australia got a very late and very, very controversial penalty. And the game just, just fell apart and it ended up with the referee running off the pitch at the end to avoid the kind of spotlight that was going to be put on him because of the decision. But I just, I remember just screaming at the telly for all the right reasons at the time, but all the wrong reasons as well. And that was, that was again, heartbreaking. It seems, <laughs> it seems the heartbreak is the recurring theme here. But um, number one is, is, is Arsenal. And it's when... Andrea Chavin scored the goal to put Arsenal 2-1 up against Barcelona in the Champions League at the Emirates, which then put them through in 2011. Just, I mean, it was a time when Arsenal still kind of believed that they might be able to win these sort of competitions. And Barcelona had always been a big, I mean, big bogey side and were certainly the best team in Europe at the time when that was when they were kind of at their glory days with Xavi and Iniesta and... Lionel Messi and and it, I remember that it was when Jack Wilshere really kind of put himself to the floor as potentially someone who had become one of the leading players in Europe. Unfortunately, we know what's happened with his career and unfortunately that's not turned out to be the case. But on that day, he certainly stood up to Xavi and, and Iniesta and showed how good he was. And Arsenal, it was probably, other than maybe the FA Cup wins, the kind of height of glory for Arsenal over the past 10 years because it hasn't been much other things to celebrate but no that was I just remember going absolutely wild when that goal went in and, and Arsenal won that game yeah so, so mine there's going to be some some similarities uh in, in coming through this and some certainly some of the teams um all those moments you talk about I, I remember and and having similar similar emotions and, and similar frustrations um Although same, some a couple of the same teams, different moments for me. Number three was again Scotland versus Australia at rugby, but for slightly uh, better reasons and different reasons. Unless you're Matt Gitto, so <laughs> I remember being at the stadium for this. I know what you're going to say, actually. <laughs> so 2012, uh, Scotland were playing uh, Australia at Murrayfield in Autumn International. I was at uni at the time, and and maybe this is the reason why I celebrated and and shouted as much as I did. But it was. Um, I'd been on a, a, a university social pub crawl, rugby pub crawl, uh, during the course. I think England had played South Africa first and Scotland had played Australia afterwards. So it was a couple of a couple of ales deep. And uh, it, Scotland at that time, rugby, you know, beating any of these summer ha- southern hemispheres. Scotland were awful. I think it's basically the way to Scotland, put it. Scotland were, were, were pretty poor. And what it came down to essentially was Matt Gitto having a kick from wide on the left, not on the touchline, but wide on the left as a conversion, kick it and win it. As simple as that. 
I remember that me and three or four other Scotland friends had left the rest of the rest of the rest of my uni crew to go and watch this game in one of the houses um, as they went on because they they were interested in an England game, and Gitto ends up pulling it left, and there was plate smashed, there was glasses smashed, there was everything else just to see Scotland beating Australia at rugby. And just the way we lost it, and, and it was at the end of the game, and poor Matt Gitto, you know, you don't want to see that on anyone, but for a Scottish fan, it was great to see the other way around. Just on that, I would, that was a great moment, but I remember being at the stadium, I remember that actually being quite bittersweet, because the amount of booing that was taking place before he hit that, hit that kick was actually almost like, I don't know, it kind of, for me being a Scottish fan in the stadium, almost dampened it for me, because it it felt like it was partly the booing to blame and I don't I just, I just don't like to see that so that was almost like a bittersweet moment for me I remember it really well now you say yeah so um yeah I'm, I'm not a fan of, of respecting uh, more people respecting the kicker either it's 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 not not good to see so number two Arsenal as well also again Arsenal versus Barcelona okay <laughs> so we've had two Scotland Australia two Arsenal Barcelona uh, and you talked about uh, Barcelona being a bit of a bogey team for Arsenal mine was the Champions League final in 2006 so got only time I've known Arsenal to get to a Champions League final and my time following them and there was a real sense of you know it was Thierry Henry and it was Bergkamp and it was Vieira and it was kind of the pinnacle of this team as it was you know on its way up and eventually sort of crux of what became the Invincibles and early on in that game there was a red card and Jens Lehmann had got sent off and he'd come out of the box and he fouled Etu or whatever it was and Barcelona then actually ended up rolling the ball into the net and rather like the goal stand the referee went back and yeah it was a red card gave the red card and then Barcelona missed a free kick because it was outside the box it was the debate at the time and it was it was in the first 15 minutes of the game and that was it. Everyone had written it off. It was Robert Perez's last game. He got substituted off. And he always talks about how he knew his time at Arsenal had come to an end at that point. Because he was the player removed to allow the, uh, the keeper to come on. However, Arsenal went 1-0 up in that game. It was a Sol Campbell, Sol Campbell header. And I just remember, it was sort of back into the first half. And I'd written it off. And I'd written it off. It was this towering, powerful header from Sol Campbell. And I lost it. That kind of gutted feeling going back to a sense of belief that actually we could still win this has always stuck with me it ends up losing 2-1 so the wrong side of a 2-1 result against Barcelona um, but that that feeling of elation and, and the, the noise and I just couldn't control I was running around the room my mum was watching with mum and mum didn't know what to do even she was spoiling <laughs> it and you know she's not always the biggest football fan and she's a West Brom fan, but even she was getting behind it. That was a number one. I don't think we'll ever get beaten. And you'll know what I'm going to say already, Roy, because anyone who's sort of spoke to that yeah. sport is six minutes. The 2004 Olympic 100 meter relay final. America, this was before Jamaica had become the powerhouse of sprinting and America with Maurice Green as its anchor leg were just unstoppable. And they, they'd won, you know, they get the baton round and they would win. It was it was just like it was just like that. You know, Usain Bolt wasn't a name, etc. And Britain again, it, it didn't have a chance. And they ran the perfect relay race with Mark Lewis Francis holding off Maurice Green going down the final straight. You know, inch by inch. You know, Maurice Green was clawing it back, but couldn't quite get there. And you talk about Wickham and their elation. You know, seeing these four sprinters who just didn't think they had a chance. Just it was it was all about trying to place for silver and, and bronze. And I suppose you speak to them and Darren Campbell and stuff. I'm sure they would say that isn't the case. But just how close it was. It was it was photo finish. It was inches, and it was the first time I'd ever really been exposed to 
you know, sprinting and, and, and the 400, four by 100 meters and what it can be. And, you know, sprinting is an individual sport and it's the one time that you come together as a team. I keep saying, I love team sports, but bringing four individuals together, you know, who are in their rights, you know, they're not, sometimes you have people who are sprint, who are relay runners and that's it. You know, these are four outstanding individuals that have come together, screaming Mark Willis Francis down that back straight in Athens. I, I, I didn't have a voice for three days afterwards. It was it was just incredible. And I would go and watch on YouTube if you get a chance and you're a British fan. It was just brilliant. Okay, so I, you might have heard the passion in our voices there as we were talking about it. I, I, as soon as you said this was the top three, I, I that was odds on to be your number one. I was, I was very confident in that. Yeah, exactly. So it's never going to be so. Um, so thank you for joining us once again. Just a little bit of housekeeping. Due to various commitments that have come up and, and the world opening up again a little bit more uh, in the UK with, with COVID, uh, we're unfortunately not going to be able to do a show next week. We're going to be having a week off. Um, but there is going to be some bonus content, so keep your eyes out yeah, for that. Yeah, as I said, there'll be some bonus content put out instead, but there won't be a full show next week, but we will be back the following week. So uh, just uh, don't worry, you will come across a couple of little bonus, bonus clips. But uh, between now and then, uh, thanks for joining us as ever, and everyone stay safe. Mm-hmm.